If you would, once again, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And as I mentioned earlier uh, in our reading, the context in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 8, is contrasting those who believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, that Jesus is the Christ, with those who don't believe that. And I might say this. I love that song that Greg chose, Not I But Christ. Um, the title of my message, and I'll repeat this again in a moment, is How Should We Then Live? How Should We Then Live? That's going to ring a bell to some of you, and when I mention who wrote that a little bit later, it'll, it'll really ring true. But the first verse of what we just sang, Not I But Christ, will really encapsulate what I want to share tonight. Not I But Christ, be honored, love, exalted. Not I But Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action, not I but Christ in every thought and word. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord, oh, to be lost in thee, oh, that it may be no more I, dear Lord, but Christ that lives in me. I want to read an introduction to you, and we will read the text as we go through the message uh, to save some time. And uh, the text will be 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. I will allude back to verses 9 and 10. The title of my message is, How Should We Then Live? As one of the most foremost evangelical thinkers of the 20th century, Francis A. Schaeffer long pondered the fate of declining Western culture in his classic book, How Should We Then Live? Forty years later, his book is as relevant today as it was when it was first published back in 1975. Schaeffer argues that the erosion of society begins with a shift away from biblical truth. How should we then live presents the solution, and here it is. Living by the Christian ethic, fully accepting God's revelation, and affirming the morals, values, and meaning of the Bible. We'll flesh that out as we go through the message tonight. In today's world, genuine Christians live in a culture that includes a growing number of pagans, persecutors, pretenders, and passive Christians. Pagans who either don't believe in any God or believe in a false God and don't have the faith that there is a God who focus on the here and now. Persecutors who see anyone who does not bow to their ideology as a threat that must be neutralized or marginalized. Pretenders who identify as a Christian in the broadest sense of the word but who desire teachers having itching ears and are content to be entertained and unaccountable. And passive Christians who believe, but who are little more than pew warmers. John MacArthur, in his 2004 commentator on 1 Peter, states unbelievers from all quarters constantly attack and criticize Christianity. Such opponents of the gospel are often vocal in their criticism, and many have succeeded in capturing the major economic, social and educational institutions of Western society. And we know that's true. But beloved, things are far worse than when he penned those words. In light of the moral plunge, the increased intolerance toward biblical Christianity, and the intrusion of government into the lives of individuals, we need to ask the same question that Francis Schaeffer asked 40 years ago. How then should we live? And Peter, in our text today, 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17 offers some answers. And I'm going to approach this message by asking you several questions. The first is this one. 
Who is Peter addressing? In 1 Peter 2.11, he addresses his readers as beloved. And I want to reference back to verses 9 and 10. In those verses, Peter reminds the beloved of who they are. But you are a chosen generation. He contrasts the beloved and unbelievers and the disobedient. If you were to go back to 1 Peter 1.1 and don't do that, but just listen, he refers to this chosen generation as elect exiles of the dispersion, as elect exiles of the dispersion. And I want to share some benefits from believing in the doctrine of election. Election means picked out or chosen by God. This doctrine is an anchor for us during these trying times. Uh, for some people, it's, it's controversial, and I say this lovingly uh, and gratefully, uh, that the Lord has opened my eyes to see how dependent I, I am upon God. If you will read the scriptures unbiasedly and openly, you cannot help but see that apart from God's grace in electing us, we would be doomed. What are some of the benefits of this? It is pride-crushing and God-exalting since it's his work from before the foundation of the world. It is gratitude producing because it's by his unearned, unmerited grace that we're granted faith and repentance. Number three, it's peace ensuring because all things work together for good to those who love God because they are the called according to his purpose. Number four, it's joy producing because it provides us with the living hope that the future glorification of our bodies is a done deal because our sovereign God has purposed it for his glory. It is gospel sharing as an incentive. Why? Because it provides us with this promise that we plant and water, but God gives his chosen increase. And beloved, as we face the challenges of the culture in which we live, we can rest in the fact that God has chosen us and that choosing of us will not end until we are glorified in heaven. And even then it doesn't end. Verse 9, again, a royal priesthood, he says we are. Spurgeon says this, that phrase, a royal priesthood, that Jesus should have loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and made us kings and priests unto God and his Father seems to be an honor which is far too high for us. Yet it's not so. For Peter wrote under divine inspiration, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. What a privilege we have. Every true believer is number one, an heir of God, the eternal king. Don't turn there, just listen to Hebrews 4, 6 through 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir of God through Christ. Every true believer is not only an heir of God, but secondly, every true believer is a priest in the sense of having equal and immediate access to God and in serving him personally. Hebrews 4.15, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved, some questions that I want us to ponder when we consider the fact that before the foundation of the world, God has chosen a people to give to Christ. And Jesus came to this earth to die for those people. And Jesus will save his people from their sins. Questions. Have you lost the wonder? Have you lost the wonder of what Christ has done for all who place their faith in him and repent of their sins? Secondly, have the distractions 
disappointments, disillusionments, and defeat that are part of life dulled your anticipation of the joys that lie ahead. I think sometimes we can tend to put our Christian walk on cruise control. And though we are saved, and though we love God, we just take the next step and do the next thing. And I think we need to guard against apathy setting in. Look at verse 9 once again. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, but third, the words a holy nation, a reference to the church or called out ones. How do we get that? We need to remember that Peter is writing to New Testament believers. And finally, in verse 9, he calls them his own special people. And then he tells us why we're called this. He says, you're his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is it easy for you to publicly praise Christ? Think about it. Is it easy for you to publicly praise Christ for the little things? You know, certainly if something big like a heart attack happens, we praise God. But is it easy? Is it your habit of praising Christ publicly? The New American Standard Version calls these people a people for God's own possession. The Greek term for possession means to purchase, to acquire for, for a price. Beloved, there is no greater price than the blood of God's beloved Son. And we need to reflect upon that. We know it. I'm not sharing anything new, but we need to dwell upon that. We need to praise God for that. It's that beloved Son in whom he is still very well pleased. And we are, Peter says, to be proclaimers. This word for proclaim is found only here in the New Testament. And it means to tell forth something not otherwise known. In other words, we're to be heralds of the gospel. Increasingly, there are more and more people in our nation, really, that couldn't give you a clue as to what the gospel means. And there's a lot of pew fillers, people in churches that major on generalities and feel-good themes that probably couldn't share what the gospel is either. Uh, can you? Can I? We're to be proclaimers. The word praises refers to the excellent virtues and eminent qualities of God. Paul exhorted the believers in Philippi to do all things without complaining and disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and harmless, listen to this, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Could it be said of you, could it be said of me, that we shine as lights in a world that's growing increasingly dark. I've said this before, the darker the night, the brighter the light. It's amazing to me that we can carry around a cell phone and you hit this little button and a small ray of light comes out. That ray gets larger in proportion to the darkness. Is it not true? If I shine it on right now, you're not going to be impressed. But I can guarantee you, if it was 1 o'clock in the morning in this auditorium and you're alone, that's a big light. It's a big light. And my point being, no matter how big a light you are, we are living in a culture that is growing progressively darker. And if we just do that which is right and correct and biblical, we will shine as lights in this world. The next two points are very, very short but important. We ask the question, how is Peter addressing them? First, who is he addressing? But secondly, 
How is Peter addressing them? Verse 11. He says, I beg you. That word beg means to call to one side, summon, admonish, exhort. Peter is not asking them or begging them to do something that he's not doing himself. But he's begging them. He's calling them to his side. He's summoning them. Peter is saying, I urge you, I beg you in a passionate way. And he uses the Greek word parakleo in much the same way as Paul uses it in Romans 12.1. Where do you see that? I beseech you, I beg you, I implore you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me repeat, do not be conformed to this world. Beloved, there are coming more and more opportunities for us for us to go against the current of the culture in which we live. There are things that are coming down the pike now that we will be expected to bow the knee to that we cannot bow the knee to. And I'll share why as we get into the message more. How is Peter addressing them? I beg you, seriously imploring them. Why is Peter addressing them? Number three, verse 11 tells us, because they're not of this world. He reminds them they are sojourners and pilgrims. Pastor Kay, I believe, mentioned that in his prayer. We are sojourners and pilgrims. Hebrews 11, 13, and 14 repeats this, talking about the heroes of the faith. The writer of Hebrews says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed. That word means to say the same thing, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, for those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Now, I have to ask myself the question, does my life and my lip declare plainly that this earth is not my home? I am headed for heaven, and I'm confident in that. And I guess the challenge that I have for you and for me is stay focused. Stay focused on the, the end goal hadn't planned on giving this illustration, but it certainly does apply, I think. Uh, if you have a soccer field going this way and the podium, there's a goal here that you're trying to put this ball in. There's a goal here that you want to keep the ball out of. There are periodically guys that will lose focus and they start dribbling this way. Guess what this accomplishes? Nothing. Nothing. Okay? It's only when you keep heading for the goal that you want to score on that you even have the potential of accomplishing anything. We need to make certain that we are God-conscious in all our ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct our paths. Why is Peter addressing him? Because they're sojourners and pilgrims. They're not putting their roots down deeply. And then fourth, what is Peter calling them to do? What is Peter calling them to do? Verse 11 again. He's calling them to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against his soul. That word abstain, more literally, means hold yourself away from fleshly lust. Hold yourself away from fleshly lust. It's in the present tense, and that tells us it's going to be ongoing decisions, daily decisions to keep from those things which would ensnare us. And I share with you familiar verses uh, out of James 1, 14 and 15, they tell us each one is tempted. 
not if he's drawn away, but when he's drawn away, of his own desires and enticed. And he goes on to say, and then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Beloved, it does not necessarily mean physical death. It could be relational death, the death of uh, a relationship. It could be occupational death. It could be the loss of ministry. And I want to go back and pick up a couple of words in this and just mention you that Satan does not play fair. When you look at James 1, 14 and 15, drawn away is one of the terms I want to look at. That is like a fish with bait. And believe me, Satan knows exactly what button to push on every one of us. We are drawn away like a fish with bait. The second word is enticed. That word is a hunter using a call. And for a hunter's call to be effective, it's got to fool the prey. It's got to make the the prey feel like uh, what it hears is needful and necessary, not just good. We need to be very, very careful that we keep at arm's length or more, that we hold ourselves away from fleshly lust. Um, Romans 6, uh, the words which war against the soul literally to carry on a military campaign. In Romans 6, Paul speaks of this inward lifelong warfare with his own flesh. And this very godly apostle called himself, O wretched man that I am. It's a battle. It's a battle. What is Peter calling them to do? Abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. But secondly, in verse 12, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Why, Peter? That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, they are observing us. Family observes us. Friends observe us. Uh, Co-workers observe us. Honorable conduct among the unsaved is what he's challenging us to do. The Greek word for honorable implies the purest, highest, noblest kind of goodness. It means lovely, winsome, gracious, noble, and excellent. And you have known of people who would fill that bill. Have you ever heard the term, he's a prince of a guy, or she the equivalent for a lady? We need to have that as an objective, that just by being around us, people can sense a different. And, and we don't do that when we get cute with words, when we get involved in things that no noble Christian should get involved in. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Slanderous attacks when they speak against us as evildoers. In the context of his own suffering for Christ, you'll recall Paul told Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Folks, we need to look at that possibility as an opportunity and not an obstacle. If we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. That means what they observe in us goes against their grain when you stop to think about it. He also spoke of the Lord delivering him out of every persecution and that evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Isn't this true? And it's sad to say, increasingly in our country, it seems as though some of the greatest impostors are self-serving politicians with an elitist agenda who are posing 
as statesmen and civil servants. Can I say that last part? They are imposters who are self-serving politicians with an elitist agenda who are posing as statesmen and civil servants. We have some statesmen in Washington and in Raleigh, but they are an endangered species. They are an endangered species. We go on. The early Christians were also falsely accused of rebellion against the government and terrorism. When? Well, when Nero accused them of burning Rome. But history tells us he was the one that burned the city. They were accused of atheism when they refused to worship idols or the emperor. They were accused of cannibalism when they referred to partaking of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. We know them to be symbols. But they used that and accused them of cannibalism. They were accused of immorality when they spoke of marrying brothers and sisters in Christ, taken from John MacArthur. But early Christians were falsely accused of many things. In our day, believers are accused of being against women's reproductive rights, of being homophobic and transphobic, and more. And listen carefully, please. Sadly, that is true among some believers who condemn the sinner with little or no distinguishable concern for his or her soul. Can I say that again? We're being accused of being homophobic and transphobic. Sadly, that is true of some believers who condemn the sinner with little or no distinguishable concern for his or her soul. And I think that Rosario Champagne Butterfield says it far better than I. And I want us to listen carefully to what she says. It's convicting. Most of you know that she is a former lesbian who was saved by God graciously using a non-condemning pastor and his wife. She articulates the need to condemn that which God condemns while displaying compassion and concern for the person who is sinning. Here's a quote from her. Depending on what you do with them, feelings may be sinful. Jesus addresses this when he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile a man, Matthew 15, 19 through 20. She goes on, homosexual lust is a sin, but so is heterosexual lust and homophobia. It is sin to write people off because they sin in ways that offend you. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. She goes on to clarify that. She says, homosexual lust is a sin, but so is heterosexual lust and homophobia. It's a sin to write people off because they sin in ways that offend you. God holds up the same mirror for us all, and none of us reflect the image of God in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge apart from Christ. I think what she's saying is we can be awfully selective in our condemnation. And it speaks to me. I need to make certain that I am concerned about the eternal soul of the person who's sinning. And while being concerned for their soul, grateful, but for the grace of God, there go I. And you've heard that before. Verses 12, verse 12b speaks of conduct that testifies of saving grace. Peter says that they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Isn't it true that we judge the character of a person's heart by the consistent conduct, by the consistent conduct that we observe in his habits? We might, we might judge it as poor character, or we might judge it as good character, but it's all, always based on what they do consistently. Everyone's going to slip up every now and then, but look at the consistent conduct in their lives. When we express our convictions with control and compassion, instead of condescension and confrontation, people will be far more likely to listen. May I say that again? When we express our convictions against some of the things that I mentioned, with control and compassion, instead of condescension and confrontation, people will be far more likely to listen. Most people naturally put up a wall when they feel threatened. Concerning the words that Peter uses, the day of visitation, MacArthur writes, because of the observation of Christian virtue and good works in the lives of believers, some would be privileged to glorify God when he also visited them with salvation. What is he saying? We all have heard the testimony of people who have referenced others who were used of God to bring them to Christ. We've all heard testimonies of that. Somebody's consistent testimony. I can mention as a young kid, uh, having an older friend, old enough to be my grandfather, his name was Leon McGibbon. Uh, we mentioned some Sunday school teachers tonight, mentioned Walt, uh, teaching sixth grade boys. Leon McGibbon taught me in the pastor's office, probably eight by eight foot room, a bunch of boys, and I'll never, ever, ever, ever forget Leon McGibbon opening the word and sharing it with us. Uh, did God use him to save me? I'm not certain about that, but he used, he used God to impact me. He used God to make an impact on me. Um, verses 13 and 14, he also says in light of this, that we've just said, in light of the fact that they observe us, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. We've gone from living before the world now to submission to government. That verse is loaded. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Submit yourself. That's a military term, meaning line up under the leadership of. We are to line up under the leadership of government. And then he says these words, to every ordinance of man. I want to ask you a question. Does this mean without any exceptions? And when you first read it, you're going to say, that doesn't take rocket science. It says to every ordinance of man. Does this mean without any exceptions? Peter describes the job description of those in civil authority as sent by God to do what? To punish evildoers and praise those who do good. Now, I want you to keep your place, if you would, in 1 Peter 2 and turn over to Romans 13. And I want to read verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Now the Apostle Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. 
Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all uh, their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And we need to keep in mind that the Caesars during this time were wicked and often violent men. I looked up the names of those who reigned uh, in the early church era. They were wicked and often violent men. So how do we answer this? How do we answer this? What if government fails to fulfill its God-ordained mission to protect those who do good and punish those who do evil? What if government fails to fulfill its God-ordained mission to protect those who do good and punish those who do evil? Here's another one for you. What if government confuses the two and calls good evil and evil good? Does that sound familiar? What if government confuses the two and calls good evil and evil good? John MacArthur in Romans 13.1 states that Scripture makes one exception to the command to obey civil authorities. When obedience to the authority would require disobedience to God's word. When obedience to the authority requires that you disobey a clear precept of God's word. I'll give you an example. Several in a minute, but uh, two General ones, Acts 5, 17 through 32, and then verses 40 and 42, records the apostles being put in the common prison because they heal folks, and many believers were added to the Lord. Even though the passage is dealing with Jewish religious authorities rather than Roman civil authorities, it illustrates this general principle. We ought to obey God rather than man. And that's it, beloved. We obey God rather than man when we're forced to choose between the two. In Luke 20, Jesus replied to the question of paying taxes to Caesar, the civil authority, by answering, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I want you to notice verse 13. What is the motive for our submission? We're to submit for the Lord's sake. So that means I've got to ask, do my speech and conduct bring glory to God and point others to Christ in what I'm doing if I have to buck the authority? Do my speech and conduct bring glory to God and point others to Christ? I want to give you some examples of civil disobedience necessitated by requirements that violate God's word. And I could give more. The Hebrew midwives refused to kill newborn male Hebrew babies. And Moses' parents hid him in violation of Pharaoh's command. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. Daniel prayed to Jehovah, full knowing that the sentence of death accompanied bowing to anyone but King Darius. Elijah openly challenged King Ahab and the false prophets of Baal before hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Esther entered the inner court of King Ahasuerus, who was a wicked, violent man. She entered the court of King Ahasuerus uninvited, which brought automatic death sentence. He held out the golden scepter. But she did that in peril of her life. Jeremiah told the king of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, surrender 
to Nebuchadnezzar. Thus saith the Lord, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, which went over great. Um, the wise men did not obey Herod's instruction to tell him where Jesus was born. And finally, Peter and John were arrested for preaching about Jesus after being told not to do so. Folks, all of those illustrations, they had to make a decision between obeying God and man. And in every case, they obeyed God and not man. The motive behind Peter's inspired instruction is the will of God. Go back to 1 Peter 2, verses 14 through 17. For this is the will of God, what Peter? That by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Consistently, good conduct that follows biblical conviction will counter, folks, the baseless, slanderous accusations of foolish people who oppose biblical principle. And that's a complex sentence. Let me read it again so we get the truth of it. Consistently good conduct that follows biblical conviction will counter the baseless, slanderous accusations of foolish people who oppose biblical principle. But here's a clarification or qualifier. We must not use our freedom in Christ as a pretext for self-serving. Well, can you give us examples? Yeah, the motive of some professing Christians who are running for political office might be self-serving. Have you heard any candidates, either in this upcoming election or the past one, talk Bible, but not live it? I sure have. I sure have. Uh, it could be that some politicians um, are self-serving. Any way you want to cut it, they're self-serving. Here's another one that hits closer to home. And thank the Lord, I don't think you will ever see this in this church, I pray. The motive for some preachers and individual believers might likewise be self-serving notoriety. I'm going to buck the system. You said I can't do this. I'm going to do it. And they go about it in a way that's self-serving and seeking notoriety. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, one from college days. There was a preacher boy who went down downtown Greenville, and he preached in an area that did not allow any selling, preaching, anything. Now, he was, they weren't saying, Christians, you cannot witness here. This area was off limits. Maybe it was too busy. You know, to be fearful of gathering a crowd and someone getting hit? I don't know. But he went down there and openly preached in an area that had been set aside where people couldn't do it. And he expected to come back to Bob Jones a hero. He came back to Bob Jones a zero. He got arrested. He got put in jail. And if I recall, he stayed in jail overnight. You know, um, and that is an example that sometimes, and you've seen them, you can have people, preachers, others in spiritual authority that are self-serving. They're not bucking government over a conviction, if you will. Thus far, we've learned that those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone are to live for the glory of God alone. 
This exemplary conduct includes obedience to civil authorities unless they require us to violate God's law, which always supersedes man's law. If we're ordered to violate the law of God and must respond through nonviolent civil disobedience, get this, some things must be clearly evident in our lives beforehand. You can't give the impression that you just got religion and you're going to buck civil authority. There's some things that better be consistently evident in our lives before we do that. And I have five that I'm going to ask you. As we navigate our culture, every professing believer must know and consistently show his or her Bible-based convictions. Number one, is it your conviction that the Bible reveals the binding principles by which God will judge all mankind with eternal consequences? Is it your conviction that the Bible reveals the binding principles by which God will judge all mankind, me included, obviously, with eternal consequences? Psalm 96, verse 13, For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. What is this truth? The word of God. It is my conviction that I am bound by this book because it reveals the binding principles by which God is going to judge me. Second question. Is it your conviction that the Bible is the template, the guide, the example? Is it your conviction that the Bible is the template for the Christian worldview and the guide with which you evaluate and respond to the culture in which you live? And I'll read that again. Is it your conviction that the Bible is the template for the Christian worldview and the guide with which you evaluate and respond to the culture in which you live. Familiar verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Is it your conviction that the Bible is the template for the Christian worldview and the guide with which you evaluate and respond to the culture in which you live? Number three, is it your conviction that you must never condone or comply without which the Bible clearly condemns? Is it your conviction that you must never condone or comply without which the Bible clearly condemns? Isaiah 15, verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as, it, as if it were a cart rope. Have you seen that on television? Just open sin and it's just skipping through life, doing that which God condemns. Um, and he warns against that. He warns against that. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. Verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And he is saying, woe to those who do this. Four out of five, the fourth question, is it your conviction that you must use the following commandments as the filter for your interaction with others? Is it your conviction that you must use the following commandments as the filter for your interactions with others? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. If you do that, folks, you are living a God-conscious life. You are filtering your speech, your thoughts, and your actions through a God-conscious sieve, if I may put it that way. 
The second one, you can almost guess which one it is. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I would get a bit of a black eye on that one. Would you? It's easy to love my neighbor when my neighbor's lovable. But if it's somebody that is a pain in the neck or if it's someone who just lives a lifestyle that is so against what I believe, I am commanded, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, period. And the last question, is it your conviction that your response to the adversity that comes with being a Christian must be shaped by the example of Christ? Is it your conviction you must use the following commandments? Now, I jumped back one, I'm sorry. Is it your conviction that your response to the adversity that comes with being a Christian must be shaped by the example of Christ? Matthew 5 43 through 45, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Do you seek the Holy Spirit's aid and refusing folks to fight fire with fire and to be an instrument of redemption, not condemnation. And that's a loaded question. Do you seek the Holy Spirit's aid in refusing to fight fire with fire and to be an instrument of redemption and not merely condemnation? I want to close with an illustration, if I may. Recently, a 17-year-old teen who does not attend Beacon told my wife and I of an opportunity that was providentially thrust on her. She'd prayed that morning that the Lord would use her. Later in the day, she went to a coffee shop to study with two friends. She was wearing a hoodie that had written on the front, I am loved. On the back was written, by God. While there, a man walked up to her and said, may I ask you a question? She consented and he asked in rapid fire, what does your hoodie mean? She replies, it means that I'm loved by God who sent his son to die so that I can have eternal life. This is a 17-year-old. He followed up rapid fire with a series of questions to which she gave a biblical answer. And I want to give some of them to you. How would you answer cold turkey to a stranger in front of friends when that, friend, friend, or that person asks you, who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Spirit? Are you polytheistic because you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why is God referred to in male terms like he, his, and Father? Is Allah God? Did the Jews believe in the same God as you do? Here's the point of the illustration, beloved. How then have you lived? How then should you live? How then will you live by God's grace? How then have you lived? How then should you live? How then will you live by the grace of God? Are you prepared to defend your faith? Are you personally studying God's word so that you might be approved by him as a workman who does not need to be ashamed at his coming? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ and God? We can rejoice in this. No matter what the future holds, we know who holds the future and who is sovereign over men and nations. We need to purpose to tend both, tell both friend and foe through our lips and our lives that the, an eternity 
of indescribable joy awaits all who place their faith in Christ. An eternity of indescribable and just punishment awaits those who scorn God, his Christ, and his word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray that this message will encourage those who are in Christ to be ready to give a reason for the glorious hope that lies within us, that it will convict those who are pretenders who are not yet unconverted, and also those passive Christians who are content to be in church on Sunday and undercover throughout the week. Uh, give us courage, give us compassion to confess the gospel through what we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.